Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Anton Kornack. He's an associate professor at the uh, University of Virginia. Um, he deals with macroeconomics, international finance, uh, financial stability, etc. We're going to be talking about his work, both in economics, how it applies to the research he's doing right now, and then a little bit of, uh, you know, coronavirus, how uh, that's affecting the economy. So, Anton, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. Thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me, what uh, normally, what uh, what do you work on within the field of economics? Yeah, so generally speaking, uh, my main area is to study what you, wanna, what you may want to call the dark underbelly of the market system. So generally, one of the premises of economics is that the market economy is a very powerful force in our society. And it's something that has enabled a great deal of progress. But at the same time, there are sometimes uh, some particular forces when uh, you could say the market system leads society astray and when the outcome of the market conflicts with the greater good. And in economic speak, we call these forces externalities. So um, externalities, uh, they arise whenever people who engage in some economic activity uh, also have an effect on others who haven't really consented to that activity. So a classic example for an externality would be pollution. Say I run a factory that is upstream from you, but while I'm producing something, I'm also polluting the river for anybody who is downstream, even though I've never asked them for their permission. Uh, now, the mother of all environmental externalities would be uh, probably carbon emissions. So when I emit greenhouse gases, I pollute the atmosphere and I contribute to global warming. And what you can see is that these kinds of externalities, they're really pervasive throughout the economy and they apply in so many areas. Most recently in my work uh, that I have done on COVID, but also in areas like our financial system, areas like when you study technological progress. And um, generally speaking, uh, all of my work focuses on various angles of how externalities contribute to um, essentially undesirable outcomes in our economy or undesirable outcomes for our society. There, is there a difference between an externality where I, I truly never experience it coming back to me and externalities where um, I may cause something to happen that very quickly can come back and impact me as well. Is there any distinction made for that? Um, you know, in most examples of what we call externalities, uh, what comes back at you is really just a small part. So let's say, for example, pollution. If I pollute the river downstream from my factory, sure, I will also suffer some negative consequences, but the brunt of it is borne by others. So the brunt of it is external, and that's why we 
call it an externality. Well, the reason why I, I'm suggesting to differentiate them between true externalities and kind of these localized tragedy of the commons type thing is yeah. that when I, if I'm going to do legislation or policy to try to change people's behavior, someone that causes an externality that comes right back on them, um, we're much more likely to say, you know what, you're right, okay, versus someone that causes an externality that they never hear or see or feel again. Like, you know, it'd be much harder for them to care. And so I would think the policy would be different. And that's why I, I don't know if anyone's assigned a scale of degree of externality um, for these things, but it may be better to, to thin slice them and then maybe perhaps better policy can be made. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The closer these uh, forms of externalities, these inefficiencies, uh, these social costs that we impose on others, the closer they hit to home, the likelier we are to actually internalize them so we don't need any form of intervention. So let's say if there are externalities within our own families, uh, we, we can probably arrange uh, with each others so we don't need any uh, governmental intervention or anything like that. And uh, we will just automatically sort it out amongst our. But the larger the group of people that you affect with an externality, the harder it becomes to coordinate. And the more of a role, I believe, there is for institutions like, let's say, our town, our state, or uh, our federal government to intervene and make sure that we we don't impose these kinds of costs on each other. So what kind of policies have you seen uh, to try to stop certain externalities, negative ones that have worked and which ones haven't? Any good examples? Yeah, you know, my latest example of such externalities is essentially human behavior during the age of COVID. So there has been this huge debate in our country, uh, unfortunately a debate that has uh, turned pretty political about whether governments... Uh, should suggest or impose public health measures or whether their behavior should be completely voluntary. So we are talking, for example, about should we have mask mandates? Should we have things like restrictions on social gatherings, restrictions on economic activity and so on? And um, once, you know, if you're an economist, once you start thinking about this question is uh, you can immediately see that uh, there is an externality behind that. So the problem is, if I continue to party as if nothing had ever happened without, of, without any social distancing, then I contribute to the spread of the virus and I put you at risk. Or if I refuse to wear a mask, I could be an asymptomatic carrier and I put you at risk. And those are in some ways classical examples of externality. So what are some common responses from other scenarios, other countries, or even this country, where the government has let everything be voluntary versus imposed its will? And, you know, any any classical examples of where things went wrong or went well? Yeah, so, so, so um, it's an interesting question uh, that you're hinting at. In some ways, you could say, if everybody behaved um you, you may say if everybody behaved really ethically, if everybody um, treated the people they're interacting with uh, with the most uh, possible respect and so on, it may actually not be necessary to impose any mandates. And let's say nowadays, for example, uh, we, we have, I think, 
enough scientific evidence that we know that um, COVID spreads in part through aerosols and um, that should make uh, people willing to wear masks when they interact with strangers whom they would put at risk of infection. And if they do that, then we don't need any mandates, we don't need any regulation. Now, unfortunately, when I go out uh, here in Charlottesville, where I'm currently based, I still see plenty of people who are not wearing masks, even in stores or in places where there is some risk of transmission. And um, actually, that is even though uh, we do have a statewide mandate to wear masks in such settings. So uh, what it tells you is, um, first, um, when you have these types of externalities, um, there is, of course, a case for regulation. The regulation may not help you very much at the same time. And even if you didn't have the regulation, a lot of people would engage in the behavior uh, that uh, essentially uh, recognizes the externalities, that recognizes the adverse social effects that their behavior well, would have. Well, it, it, it doesn't sound like you're putting on your economist hat to be, you know, I'm not trying to be mean, but <laughs> most economic decisions are made so far as I understand with the calculus, you know, what is a life worth? What is the likelihood of something happening versus not happening? You know, and I don't see that with COVID. All I we don't know, but no, therefore we're being cautious. So I'm not saying wear a mask, don't wear a mask, but I have not heard at all any attempt to quantify, does it help? How much does it help? If we assume 85% of people will comply as they typically do when given a regulation like this, mm. will that be effective? I mean, I don't see any calculus for any of the, the lockdowns or any of this stuff. I'm, I don't see any rationality applied to this whole mess. I don't hear it at all. Yeah, and yes. I don't understand why, because I thought that was the tool book, the tool belt of, of economists. Yeah, so that's a very important question. And, um, you know, there has actually been uh, quite a lot of work on trying to evaluate the costs and benefits of uh, interventions uh, of things like distancing uh, when it comes to COVID. And in fact, with one of my colleagues here at UVA, uh, Zach Bethun, uh, I've written a paper that looks more or less at this question. Uh, so we, we have in the title of the paper, Trading Off Lives Versus Livelihood. And of course, you know, that's one of these titles uh, that in uh, non-economists uh, may uh, pr provoke uh, a little bit of skepticism. But as you say, the science of economics is precisely about expressing uh, things in a common denominator and comparing the benefits and costs of different behaviors. So what we do in that paper is we, we analyze the benefits and costs of uh, different uh, degrees of social distancing and how they affect both the course of the epidemic and the um, uh, economic costs that are incurred by society. So um, essentially, uh, how much should we let the epidemic run its course versus how much should we restrict um, interactions while fully knowing that that will have a significant economic now, um, oh, I'm, I'm arguing that no one knows the economic cost. I mean, everything was done without, I mean, I understand in the beginning people could say, we don't know, we don't know.
but there's been no public disclosure of, okay, now we know, or at least if there has been a public disclosure, no one has said, okay, we're getting some numbers on stuff. Therefore, we're going to do the following because the numbers tell us this. Like, you know, driving cars, mm-hmm. a, a high percent, a high, not percentage, a high number of people die from driving cars. There's a certain risk that has been calculated yeah. with doing that versus traveling on an airplane, et cetera. But that's not known for COVID. I don't see any attempts to know it. I don't see any attempts to even narrow the possibilities and therefore, you know, when policy is made, talk about the possibilities. All I hear is nebulous, the science, or, oh, it's precaution. Why is there no attempt? Why is there narrowing, um, you know, the numbers? And why is there no calculations being made and then refined and refined and refined? I don't see that at all. I don't know what all the economists are doing, but maybe they're being ignored. I don't know. I just don't see it. Yeah, so in March, uh, when we had to make these first calls uh, on whether to impose lockdowns, whether to just continue and so on, uh, I think back then you were right that we essentially didn't know anything. But, um, you know, in the past four months, uh, there has been really a ton of economic work trying to look at all the different aspects, uh, including all the different costs of what the different restrictions entail. So, um, for example, um, there is a new journal that was founded at the end of March. It's called COVID Economics. And um, if I remember correctly, uh, a couple of days ago, they came out with issue 33 of that journal. And each of those uh, issues contains something like five articles. So uh, there is uh, already more than 150 papers in economics that have been published uh, that measure different aspects of the economic cost, different uh, aspects of how the interventions worked or did not work. So I would say uh, by now we have learned a great deal of what we're dealing with economically. Do you see it being reported anywhere or used any of any numbers or any references to civic papers or you know, and then do you personally, so what, you know, what's your new understanding of the economics based on reading some of the papers in this journal? Mm-hmm. Like, is so, there any examples that you could point out, you know, give some specifics? Uh, yeah, so let me, let me tell you a couple of things that I thought at the beginning of the pandemic and uh, how I have changed my thinking on them based on the research that I've been seeing Um So the first thing uh, was back in March, uh, you heard everybody talking about flattening the curve. Uh, You may remember uh, whenever uh, you went on Twitter and uh, you looked up COVID, whenever you read the news, everybody was talking about flattening the curve. So I thought, um, well, maybe one of the best strategies of dealing with this is to slow it down. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Now, actually, it turns out if you you do an analysis that kind of weighs off uh, epidemiological benefits and economic costs of intervention, what you found is uh, the best thing to do is to try as hard as possible to get rid of it, not to flatten it, but to eradicate it, to get rid of it, to essentially... Uh, bring cases as close as possible down to zero so that something like a normal life can go on again. And, you know, if you look um, at the experience of different countries or even the experience 
parents of different states, uh, you can see that some have been uh, successful in getting there, or almost getting there, like uh, New Zealand, uh, obviously in part because it's easier for them due to their geography, has been able to completely get rid of COVID. Uh, a lot of European countries have reduced their caseload by 98%, 99%. Um, other countries, including the US, Brazil, um, Russia, uh, are at all-time highs right now, and uh, it doesn't look like uh, they will either be able to or willing to get caseloads to something much lower until we have effects. So, okay, so with the data you're seeing, um, again, you're along the same lines. Of, so, well, let me ask you a few specifics. Um, mm -hmm. Social distancing, has there been any experimentation to look at, you know, how far and how an effect it has? Uh, yeah, there are some papers that um, essentially use the information contained in uh, how different states have enacted social distancing at different times. And what they do find is that uh, mandatory social distancing has made a difference and it has made a clear difference. Now, um, you know, uh, returning to our previous discussion on the externalities, what is also interesting is even without social distancing, uh, people become much more precautionary when case numbers go up, which is, of course, something you would expect, right? But it tells you that um, individual behavior and in part altruistic individual behavior goes some way, but mandatory measures uh, can still uh, carry us further and get us closer to getting a handle. Okay. Well, what, uh, in terms of the economic outcome on uh, GDP, jobs, et cetera, what, what is your thinking there? What, what uh, do you see happening over the next six months or year in the United States? Yeah, so let me, let me first add a disclaimer. Um, it's incredibly hard to predict um, how this uh, disease is going to continue over the next couple of months. Um, so let, let's take maybe as a... Um, let's say, slightly optimistic baseline scenario that the southern states uh, that are currently experiencing the greatest outbreaks manage to get it under control and that case numbers come down a little bit uh, from where they are right now, but that COVID will still be, to some extent, raging for the next couple of months. And then, you know, to add to the optimistic scenario, let me also... Um, uh, assume that we'll have a vaccine around uh, the turn of the year, which is optimistic, but not uh, unreasonably optimistic. So a lot of people are predicting that we may have a functioning vaccine by the end of the year. So if that's what's going to happen, then I think um, we will continue to see uh, pretty high unemployment, probably in the double digit numbers for the remainder of the year. And uh, we will continue to see subdued economic activity. And uh, I believe we won't see a real recovery until um, when we do have the vaccine. And um, at that point, uh, the, the scars left by the pandemic will be uh, sufficiently severe that the recovery will probably be quite slow kind of like the slow recovery that we faced, uh, that we uh, saw after the 2008. So that's kind of my baseline scenario. Well, 
that's a big assumption. What if there is no vaccine? It's not efficacious, you know, and everyone just can't sit there and hope, oh, okay, we don't have to worry because the vaccine, we got to deal with what now, in my opinion. You're absolutely right. That is a relatively optimistic scenario. Let's say it takes another year until we have a vaccine. Um, in that case, the economic pain is just going to be uh, even more drawn out. Um, probably the patience of people to deal with the public health measures is also going to stretch even thinner, and we may see more waves and more outbreaks. Um, now, I think you're absolutely right. We can't be sure that vaccines will be effective. Uh, so my reading of the literature right now, of the medical literature right now, is that there is a pretty high chance uh, that we will eventually be able to produce a vaccine, uh, but it's not a guarantee. Now, if that were to happen, uh, then it means we're going to have to really find a way of dealing with the coronavirus in the long term, kind of like we are dealing with the flu or a bunch of other diseases for which we don't have vaccines. And um, so what we will have to do in that scenario is we'll have to try really hard to suppress it. And then countries like, let's say, New Zealand that have been able to get rid of it uh, will be the big winner. Again, I don't think that's the main scenario, but you're right, it can't be ruled out. Well, okay, and then last question or so. I know it's very hard to predict economically what's going to happen. That's okay. But would you be willing to speculate on what you think may happen? You know, will the stimulus have a big effect? Has it been absorbed by the economy? That, uh, you know, the economy is going to recover vaccine or no vaccine. It's going to, like, what do you, again, there are many, many factors. It's very hard to contemplate. No one's holding you to it. But yeah. what's, your, what's your speculation? Pure speculation on what happened based on your knowledge. So, so you're saying in the long run, if we didn't have a vaccine? Yeah, I'm saying over the next, over the year. What do you think will happen with the U.S. economy? Oh, assuming, the next, that, assuming there's no vaccine. Over the next year. So um, I would imagine we would enter kind of a new normal in which some activities that all of us uh, used to engage in quite a lot will simply be largely cut out. So I think if we still don't have a vaccine in a year from now, uh, very few people are going to engage in long-distance travel. Uh, very few people are going to um, in, enjoy, let's say, uh, activities where you have a lot of physical contact, say, let's say, for example, massages. So the economy is going to um, permanently miss uh, some of these areas that have been just a regular part uh, of economic activity, but that we can't engage in. And in this new normal, uh, we will still have quite a significant amount of unemployment. So let's say even if we if we don't have a vaccine in a year from now, um, I think unemployment numbers will have come down slightly from where they are now, but they may well still be in the and GDP will probably not have fully recovered by. Now, what is uh, also interesting, and we can already see a lot of antecedents in the current economic data, especially if you look at the stock market, there is a whole bunch of sectors that are also beneficiaries of the pandemic. So all the digital activities, let's say, for example, um, Zoom, over which we are currently uh, having uh, this conversation, uh, they are uh, real beneficiaries of the pandemic. 
And my expectation is that uh, no matter uh, if we have a vaccine or not, uh, no matter if we will be able to uh, get the coronavirus under control sooner or later, there's really going to be a lasting shift towards more digital technology. And that is here to stay. That will be with us even once everything else has recovered. So our economy is going to be more digital forever. Okay. Well, I mean, that'll have, uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a real push forward into the digital world, yeah, in terms of implementation. Yeah, in some ways you can say COVID is forcing us to engage in more, more automation, is forcing us to push into the digital age. And let's say at places like, um, you know, I'm an academic at places like university, I could well imagine that uh, we will have a lot more digital activities going forward, even when we don't need to and be safe to meet in person. Well, unfortunately, when people say stuff like that, like it's not safe to meet in person, you know, again, there's no numbers behind it and in person is not defined. And, yeah. Well, very good, Anton. What's the best way for... Uh, for people to find out more about your work and your, uh, you know, you mentioned the COVID Economic Journal sounds like an interesting resource, but you know, for you specifically, how can they find out more about what you're doing? So I have collected all of my work on my website, www.corinec.com. That's K-O-R-I-N-E-K.com. Okay. Well, very good. Anton, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.